Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it about, to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Okay, we'll stop there this morning. We could continue and we could see more of what happens. We're going to stop right there and we'll look at the next part next week. First this morning... I just want us to consider two kingdoms. I want us to consider two kingdoms as we look at the Jews coming to Pilate's headquarters. So we know already, if we're paying attention to Scripture, if we know the story of Scripture, Pilate was a politician. And he was also brutal at times. It, I mean, Although it might be worth saying that he was brutal to our 21st century American minds. He, he wasn't necessarily out of the ordinary for his day. At all, and this was not necessarily out of the ordinary uh, either. He is the kind of man who would have a man that he considered innocent tortured brutally and crucified in order to just make his subjects happy and keep the peace. You know, Luke, he, he tells a story well before this Passover happened that it was, it was just a discussion, and Pilate came up in Luke chapter 13, verse 1. You would read, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And so Pilate, we see here, he had already shown the kind of man that he was. He's, he's not a sympathetic figure. And Pilate and the Jews, they're two sides of the same coin. They're, they're kindred spirits in a sense. They are self-focused political animals. So, let the posturing begin. Let the negotiations begin. And as we read through this, keep your eye on Jesus the whole time. His presence is a contrast to everything that's going on around him. <coughs> so the first dance, the first step of this dance here, it comes when the Jews arrive and they won't enter Pilate's house. And we'll see, Pilate is willing to come out to them. 
Pilate is not normally in Jerusalem. Uh, he would normally be in Caesarea. But for Passover, he's here in person. And why is he here in person for Passover? So to make sure that the peace is kept, to make sure that the riots don't happen. These Jews can be kind of uppity and, and, and they, can, they can break out into attempted revolutions. And so knowing the Jews and knowing their proclivities, he's in Jerusalem and also knowing that he comes out to them in order to keep the peace so they don't have to come in to where he's at. So, so the Mishnah, which the Mishnah would be the Jewish teachings that, that got built up all around the law, it gives a lot of criteria for how entering a Gentile's house could cause uncleanness. So they wouldn't be able to, to enter. They wouldn't be able to observe the rest of the Passover feast and the Passover festival. Remember the festival, the, the, the feast is something that went on for, for, for several days. And so, of course, the public leadership of the Jews, they, they, they can't just withdraw from the festival and from the events of the festival. They can't do that. So they can't enter into his house. <coughs> so they won't. And Pilate is willing to come out to them. But of course, I just want us to see. Nothing could give us a better glimpse into the hearts of these men than this particular comment from John. These men would follow the letter of the law publicly so that they can keep their image, so that they can keep their influence, so that they can show up publicly at the Passover feast while at the same time they are so obviously perverting justice to get a man killed who they view as a political enemy. They have completely disconnected their religion from a true and sincere relationship with their God. Do you see that? Just right here at the beginning, John is showing this to us. There's no humility here. This is all about protecting their image, protecting their status, protecting their power. There is no sincere care, and there's no sincere love. There's just politics. <coughs> Look at what they tell Pilate. They say, just trust us. Why, would we waste your time bringing him here if he wasn't? I mean, what kind of argument is that? Would, would we waste your time bringing him here if he wasn't guilty? Just, Pilate, we, get your stamp out and just stamp this, please. John is highlighting for us the injustice. Now, of course, there were already Roman soldiers that were involved in this, and so it is possible, it's even likely, that there was already a, an arrangement between the Jews and Pilate. And maybe that's why the Jews respond the way that they do here. Because again, this is clearly not a great argument to have somebody killed. Um, well, we brought him here, so kill him, obviously. But this shows the evil of the Jews, doesn't it? Why? I mean, they're sitting here thinking, why would, Paul, why would Pilate need to talk to Jesus himself? They've said that he deserves death. That should be enough. <coughs> And so that's step one in the dance. But then step two is Pilate's response. Pilate puts them in their place when he says, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. What is he doing? He's reminding them that they have to defer to him. 
Yes, he's going to come out. Yes, he recognizes they can throw a fit and they can throw riots. But he's Rome. And they can't forget that either. So he's throwing it in their face here when he says, you take him and judge him by your law. Rome has power over Israel. And they have to play by his rules. But of course, we, we would stop and think as well, you know, even if, they, even if you take away the fact that they couldn't execute Jesus, they also couldn't handle Jesus when it came to their own law, could they? I mean, he's, he has shown that to them as well. He can run circles around them when they argue the law with him. So I don't think they want to argue the law with him. We, again, you just see their motives. They're clearly on display here. They just want him dead. They're just hoping Rome goes along with it. And as this progresses, this is what we're going to see. We're going to see this is all a farce. Decisions are made not because of the truth about Jesus, but because of the cultural situation where you've got a Roman governor negotiating with a testy, riot-prone nation on their largest religious festival. That's what we see here. This is injustice. And yet, in the midst of this dance between Pilate and the Jews, God is the one who is moving here. God is the one who is moving here. Verse 32 reminds you of that. All this is to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken. So we're watching Pilate and the Jews going back and forth here. But the one who is really in control of this moment is right there. Jesus. He's in control. But you have these two kingdoms. Rome and Israel. And they think that they're fighting and they think that they are trying to control the situation. <coughs> it's not what's happening. But make sure that you feel the tension between these two nations here. Make sure you see the interplay between Pilate and the Jews. Rome has the power to do what the Jews want. But Rome also has to be careful not to antagonize the Jews too much either or else Rome will have a revolution on their hands. So Pilate comes out to them, but he also makes them wait while he makes his own decision. This is all just gamesmanship. This is all politics. And it's really important for us to see the dance that's happening right now because it is the context for what Jesus is going to say in just a moment. So make sure that you see these two kingdoms dancing around each other, grabbing the power that they can, asserting themselves. They are fighting for this particular moment, at this particular place. You feel the power struggle here happening in Jerusalem. <coughs> That's our first point. Our second point is this. A different kingdom and a different priority. A different kingdom and a different priority. So when Pilate gets alone with Jesus... We see that he does sort of understand what the issues are. This question, are you the king of the Jews? So, so he does know what the complaint is here. He does know how the Jews are, are coming at this. But it also seems he doesn't fully understand it. So he gets Jesus alone. And when Jesus asks whether, you know, that question is from Pilate or whether that question is from somebody else, look at what Pilate says. He says, am I a Jew? You should read that with like all the condescension you can possibly put in it. All the condescension, all the disgust, all the, are you kidding me right now? What do I care about you Jews and what's going, am I a Jew? 
He's presenting himself here as a higher authority over the Jews. What does he care about them? But we also begin to sense here that there's something about the Jewish story that he's just not buying. He, he's not willing to just go along with him. And he probably, what he's trying to do is he probably wants to understand the real reason that they want Jesus killed. I mean, he, again, he's a politician and he knows politicians. He knows that what came out of their mouths is not what they actually mean. So he's trying to figure out what did they actually mean? What's the reason? What is he doing here? After all, Pilate certainly had to know about Jesus. I mean, he's been the talk of the Passover, especially after the triumphal entry. So something's not adding up here. So he asks Jesus, he says, you tell me in your words, what have you done? And Jesus' answer here has to be kind of weird and disturbing to him. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Pilate hears that, and he picks up on the one thing that he understands from that statement pretty clearly. So, you are a king then. Because Jesus started off saying, my kingdom. And Jesus agrees with that. I mean, he puts, he, he puts it on Pilate. But he doesn't disagree. This is, you said that. But he changes the terms again. And what he does is he changes the terms to go far beyond Pilate's idea of kings and kingdoms. He appeals to the concept of truth, which would be for every person. And the last sentence that he says here in his response to Pilate seems to get under Pilate's skin a little bit. Jesus says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate, everyone who is of the truth. Pilate, you can see how that might get under your skin a little bit because Jesus just told him, if you were of the truth, what would you be doing? You would be believing him. And so Pilate comes back with this great response. What's truth? But he never gives an opportunity for this Jew to answer him. He turns away. He goes back outside. What a missed opportunity, right? But even though he doesn't follow Jesus, he also realizes that Jesus isn't doing what the Sanhedrin is accusing him of. He was able to catch that from the way that Jesus was talking about kingdom here. That Jesus is not interested in fighting a war. He's not interested in creating an army to overthrow anybody. Pilate at least has caught that much. Jesus may be weird. He may be a mystic. But he doesn't seem like he's a threat. He, he clearly doesn't mean king and kingdom the way that the Sanhedrin are acting like he means it. So what do you see here from Jesus' words? I want us to see that there is a clash here between two very different priorities. And on the one side, you have Pilate and the Jews. And on the other side, 
you have Jesus. And these priorities come from two very different understandings of reality. <coughs> so, for the Jews and for Pilate, the reality is the immediate geopolitical reality. That's everything to them. It defines their purpose. It controls their actions. Who has the most power now in Jerusalem? Who will have the most power in Israel? How will Israel assert its power against Rome and hopefully overtake it one day? How will Rome keep Israel down under their boot and control them and use them? For that's their reality and it defines their purpose why is Jesus being killed by these Jews? Because he's a threat to their power. Because he might be a threat to Rome. All of these things are there. And it controls their actions. So we've already seen that quite a bit, and we're going to see even more of it next week. But here, we see that Jesus has a very different understanding of reality. And it also sets his priorities his kingdom exists, yes. He, he describes this by talking about kingdoms. And His kingdom, it does exist than the kingdoms that either the Jews or Pilate are talking about. Psalm 2 might help us understand where Jesus is coming from here. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Turn in your Bibles there. And we're going to read through Psalm 2. And we're going to see, so Psalm 2 helps to set some of the reality from which Jesus might be working here, in contrast to the Jews and Pilate. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage, and the peoples plot in vain? And the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Here we see a the same contrast that we see in John. The contrast between an earthly understanding of earthly kingship and God. And the two could not be further apart. And so while we see the Jews, and the Jews should have known this, the Jews should have understood this, but they stand as a warning to us it is very easy to get consumed with our earthly kingdoms. 
It is so easy to get consumed with our earthly kingdoms, big ones and little ones, and lose sight of what Jesus is saying here. His kingdom is breaking into the world now, yes, but it is doing so through the proclamation of the gospel. While the spread of the gospel will change the hearts of people, and yes, those people will often change and shape culture around them in positive ways, his kingdom does not come into the world through our actions or our changes. His kingdom comes into the world through his supernatural salvation of souls. We read it at the beginning in Isaiah chapter 53. In this beautiful passage here, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. This is what we're seeing right now. By oppression, <coughs> he is being taken away. He's being afflicted. His generation considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You see, the, the Jews didn't actually think that this was about their Messiah. That this, this individual in Isaiah 53 was a different individual than their Christ, their anointed one, the coming king. Jesus has said otherwise, though. This is who he is. And so listen to this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. How is the kingdom coming into the world? It's not a kingdom the way that the Jews were thinking or the way that Pilate was acting. The king, the one true king, the king from Psalm 2 who was set on Zion, he's right here with Pilate. And you know what he's about to do? He's about to go to battle for the citizens of his kingdom. He is getting ready to carve out his kingdom in this world. But let me ask you, What's the battle that he fights? Where is the ground that he takes for his kingdom? The battle that he fights is against sin and death. He lays the axe at the root of the tree to destroy the one thing that rules over every king and every kingdom. Sin and death. Every king on earth thinks that they rule their kingdom. But every one of them is ruled by sin and death. And so are you, and so am I, if Jesus does not take his kingdom. And so he comes to the cross, 
to be killed by these petty politicians in order to save his people? And what is the ground that he takes? Where is his kingdom now? It is in the people that he saved, the people that he called, the many that he made righteous. That's his kingdom. The Jews, they can't understand it, which is so incredibly sad in this moment. I titled this sermon, His Own Really Did Not Receive Him. And that's what we see here. <coughs> he came to his own, and they, did not, they didn't even understand him. Their reality and their understanding were so totally different than his. When they were talking about a king, they were talking about something totally different than what he was talking about. He was talking about an eternal kingdom, and the first step for us is salvation. Now we should point out, though, we should point out this. This kingdom is a threat to the kingdoms of the world, but not in the way that Pilate or the Sanhedrin are thinking. So, as Christianity grew in the Roman Empire, many felt incredibly threatened by these groups of believers who were submitting themselves to the government. They were, in all honesty, living peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way, because that's good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. That's what Paul told the church to do. But what else were they doing? They were worshiping Jesus alone. They were refusing to worship other gods, including and especially worshiping the emperor. In fact, they were criticizing the worship of other gods and, and they were criticizing the activities that came with the worship of other gods and they were not joining in. Peter says it, don't join them in their orgies. And around the year, of, uh, the year 112, the emperor Trajan, he wrote in a letter, he said, if anybody denies that he's a Christian, and proves it in practice by worshiping other gods. He shall be pardoned. So you see, this is a threat, but in a very different way. It's a threat because Jesus came to capture people's hearts and minds completely. He came to capture you, to redeem you entirely. Your heart is now His because He gave you a new one. Your mind is now His because it's been renewed in Him. Your loyalty is now His because He bought you. He saved you from the thing that actually rules everybody. The real king of this world. Death. And so our culture is still like this. Only we've changed the nature of the worship subtly. We don't always make gods and idols. We don't always demand that you worship the emperor. I mean, some nations do. But we certainly do. Our culture certainly does demand that you accept certain ideals and beliefs. You know, we can worship Jesus. That's fine. But you also have to accept and affirm the world's ideals on particular subjects as well. 
And if we don't, and if we criticize, and if we say, you know what that really is, is that is idol worship. That is self-centered idolatry. That is putting ourselves over and against God's design. We do this in so many ways. We do this with sexuality, obviously. We do this with identity. Those are the big ones, right? It's easy for us to point those out and to say, you know, when, when we say that you can, you can be whatever you would like to be in terms of sexuality, that goes against God's design, doesn't it? And it sets us over and against that. And it is a self-centered worship of ourselves, quite frankly. And we can't do that. We have to worship God. And in worshiping God, we have to say that His design is perfect. It's good. It's what ought to be. And so, obviously, we should do that. But I want you to take a step further than that as well. We can do that in a lot of other ways. We can do that with our families. We can do that with our children. We can do that with our jobs. We can put our jobs over and above what they ought to be. We can find our identity in our jobs instead of our identity in Christ. That's worship. That is idol worship. We can find our identity in our family instead of in Christ. That's idol worship. There are so many ways that the world calls us to think like the world. This ought to be just a cold blast of air bursting through our souls when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He's here to capture your heart for Himself. He's here to capture your mind for Himself. He's here to take you for Himself in every way. Your loyalty is to Him. So yes, it is a threat to this world. But we have to make sure we understand how it's a threat to this world. It's a threat because you and I now know something that the world rejects. That there is more to our existence than this moment. There is more to your existence and your activity than just this moment. There is Christ's kingdom, which is beginning now through the shepherd calling out his people. And a day is coming when the king will come. And he will put every single one of his enemies under his feet. And he will usher in his kingdom perfectly. But do we see what he's doing here now? What's the battle that he's fighting? What is the ground that he's taking? It's the cross. So, how do you and I reflect Jesus in this world? We proclaim him. This battle that he fought is everything to us. Did you know that more hearts can be taken for the kingdom of God? Did you know you can be a part of that? By proclaiming Christ and living for him. God might use you to usher in his people into his kingdom, which will be for all eternity. He's the Lord. He looks down at, at the, the kings of the earth and he laughs in derision. What are they going to do? Here you see these people and they're bouncing around Jesus' life. 
Does it look to you like John is saying that Jesus is afraid of this moment? Does it look to you like John is saying that Jesus is sitting over here going, Oh no, I better, I better slow down, I might die. Just the opposite. You and I, we have been given the same promise that Jesus is relying upon in this moment. Have you thought about that? The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is in you, Christian. We have the same promise that Jesus has here. You will not be taken out of the kingdom of God even if you die, even if you suffer, even if you're weak. So we see this here, this picture of the two kingdoms, the Jews and Pilate. And then we see Jesus coming in with this wonderful contrast. What he's doing goes so far beyond what they're worried about. Is what he's doing going so far beyond what you're worried about as well? It might be. It probably is in some ways. We can get caught up in petty things ourselves. We can get caught up in petty politics. We can, we can get caught up in fighting for our own position. And, oh, the, you know, I should be able to do this. Or, how could they do that? Again, let what Jesus says here focus us. He's focused on the cross. He's focused on human hearts. He's focused on salvation, eternal salvation and entry into his kingdom. And so Pilate, he goes back outside and he says, I find no guilt in him. Pilate doesn't understand who Jesus is, but the one thing he does know is the Jews are wrong about him. And so just for a moment here, when Pilate says this, and he says, I find no guilt in him, we could think about what the right thing to do in this situation would be. Pilate, you know, the right thing would be, he would rebuke the Jews for their pride, wouldn't he? He'd rebuke the Jews for their arrogance. He'd rebuke them for their fear of this man. He would, he, he would tell them, he would say, you know, you ought to wrestle with what Jesus is saying on your terms. You ought to, you ought to let him debate the understanding of your religious text here. He could have rightly said, this is not a matter for execution. That's fearful behavior. He could have taken the reasonable, rational approach to handling this situation. That's what he could have done. But he's a politician. So that's not going to happen. Instead, th this is where the real posturing begins. I wanted you to see, and I asked you to look at the difference because I wanted you to see John is highlighting the dance here, the political dance between Pilate and the Jews. And, and that was just a prelude. When we get into next week, we're really going to see it, but it starts here. This is, this is where the real posturing begins. This is where the ugly truth of human hearts reveal themselves. Because instead of encouraging a truthful, open engagement, Pilate thinks that he sees another way out. He says, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Of course, I want you to know, he's mocking them. He's mocking them when he calls Jesus the king of the Jews. But any real justice, is, it's, it's out the window now. 
it's done. As soon as he opens up this avenue of thinking, any chance of justice here is out the window. Now it's all negotiations. What is going to keep the Jews happy? What is going to keep Pilate keeping his face and everything? And the Jews, they stick to their guns. They say, okay, you want to free somebody? Free Barabbas, who was a robber, which of course just puts the cherry right on top of this injustice, doesn't it? What do we take away from this? We have to see that the whole debacle here has revealed a lot of human hearts to us, hasn't it? In fact, we've been seeing human hearts revealed quite a bit recently. Pilate's heart is revealed here. The Jews' heart, hearts are revealed here. Last week, whose heart was revealed to us last week? Peter's heart was revealed to us last week, wasn't it? And Jesus' heart is revealed here as well. In that, he is focused on the will of God. In that, he is going forward with this injustice. That he is moving forward because he is bringing a kingdom. But that kingdom is focused right now on the hearts, the sinful, wretched, rebellious, condemned hearts of his people that need to be made clean and righteous. In order for them to get the inheritance that he has planned, they must be cleansed. And that's still true now. Is there any doubt when we look at Pilate, when we look at the Jews, when we look at Peter, is there any doubt that the king that we need is one that can save us from our own hearts? That's where we end today and we celebrate the Lord's Supper. He died, his body was broken, his blood was shed because we need more than anything a king who can do something about our hearts, our sin, our wretchedness, our rebelliousness, our weakness, our spiritual death. That's the terms. That's the hope. And it still is. We live in that already, not yet, right? We live in that moment where, where the kingdom is, is exposed to us through Christ. It, is, it has been presented. He has brought it in. And yet the not yet, it's not fully here yet. Because why? Because this is again the moment where the shepherd is calling his sheep. He's taking his people. Is there any doubt that the king that we desperately need right now, that you need and I need and our neighbors need, and our friends need, and our family members need, and our co-workers need. The king that we need, the ruler that we need, is the one who can change our hearts. And that's what Jesus accomplished. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture of these earthly kingdoms posturing, fighting for power, and Lord, just the irony that's on display here. Both of these kingdoms are doomed to fail. And the men who all were here 
posturing back and forth. They all died. They never got to see the fruit of their labor, and even if they had the fruit of their labor, was violence. Lord, I pray that we see Christ here presenting the picture of His kingdom. His kingdom which is not of this world. His kingdom which is of the truth. And Lord, I pray that we would come to Christ that way. I pray that as we take the Lord's Supper here, that it would bless us. In Christ's name, amen.